Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover of Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues. This podcast is a mixture of real estate business and law. Today we have our back to school special, which is what we're calling it. We uh, recorded a podcast interview with Liz Holland of Abel Associates. She is the chief executive officer over there, uh, former attorney turned real estate professional, and she was just fantastic. So we recorded this in July, but we wanted to save it for September so we can do our back to school because she just took us to school explaining so many different things, projecting future trends, and she, well, let's just back up a little bit. So I first saw Liz at ICSC convention in Las Vegas. She's the chair, she was the outgoing chairman of that committee, uh, the International Council of Shopping Centers, and she currently serves uh, on the, as a Board of Trustees member for ICSC. And so I saw her speak to, I don't know, 2,000 people there. She was fascinating. I reached out to her, and she agreed to come on to her podcast. So we started this right after Amazon Prime Day, and she talked a little bit about Amazon and the trends that she's seen in the marketplace. And then we, we moved into all sorts of uh, interesting topics, and I think that you'll love it. So I'm going to make my introduction brief because I just want to jump right into that interview. If listeners want to get in touch with us, I want you to feel free to email us at solutioncenteratctltd.com or by visiting our website, realestatebreakfast.com. We should also mention that this podcast is being produced by SATC Solutions Center, L3C, which is the Education and Development Division of the law firm Shankanis Tepper Campbell. I'm an attorney and principal with that firm, been with the firm since 2005. We're extremely excited about this podcast episode, and I know that you'll enjoy it too. Thanks so much. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Philip Coover, and I'm joined today by Liz Holland of Abel Associates. Liz, thanks for coming on the program. Happy to be here. So Liz is a member of the Board of Trustees of the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC. She was the chairman last year. I had the honor of witnessing her speech at ICSC in Las Vegas this year, which is how I first uh, got my introduction to Liz. And uh, she is a, a former lawyer turned uh, real estate developer. So it's, she's a perfect person for this podcast, which is a mixture of real estate business and the law. And Abel Associates oversees a growing portfolio of, of uh, 4.5 million square feet of retail and office space. And uh, is one the oldest women run real estate development companies in the country. <clears throat> but uh, we're going to talk about Liz's background in a minute, but I thought, Liz, that we would just, we're, we're recording this on July 14th, and we're just on the backs of Amazon Prime Day, and I, I love some of your takes on the real estate trends in, uh, in retail in 2017, so let's talk about Amazon. Okay. Um, you know, Amazon is very good at what they do. They've done a great job of creating Prime Day as a big must-see. 
Um, I thought what was interesting about this Prime Day as opposed to Prime Day's past is a lot of the news post Prime Day because they saw you know increases again as a percentage. I think 60% is what was reported over last year. But I think people are now kind of wise to the e-commerce model, which is that growing top-line sales, which is what that 60% number represents, is not necessarily indicative of growing bottom-line margin and profit. And so the challenges of actually shipping stuff to people for free, having them be able to return it for free, really creates almost a negative sale on the part of that merchant. And so I think a lot of the reporting post Amazon Prime Day was, will this equate to better second quarter, third quarter growth for them? And so it's really hard to know. Right, and you know, I think the past few years, a lot of people have been worried about Amazon um, putting brick and mortar retail out of business, but now Amazon is creeping into brick and mortar. So, you know, obviously uh, everyone knows about the recent acquisition of Whole Foods. Uh, How do you think that Amazon is going to change our current Whole Foods? You know, having gone to their bookstore and been incredibly impressed by how they created a model of an industry that they are accused of decimating is that they really, in my estimation, what Amazon wants to be when it grows up is it wants to be Costco. Because when you go to the bookstore, you get 30 plus percent off the cost of your book if you're an Amazon Prime member. And everyone knows Costco, which is a great retailer, they sell great products, they're a great employer, they do an amazing job, makes no money, no gross margin on what they sell, they make it on the memberships. And so what Amazon is doing with the Prime member price markdown is they are solving the last mile, which is where they lose margin, And in fact, if the item is returned off and lose money, depending on the weight of the item that's being returned, um, they will, I think, take Whole Foods, give you Trader Joe's pricing if you're an Amazon Prime member, and solve the last mile for the grocery customer, which has always been the challenge for anybody kind of in the e-commerce space trying to sell groceries online. Well, tell us more about the the Amazon experience. And um, you were saying to me the other day about how you walk in and you swipe your credit card and it brings up uh, your Prime model. Not to right. Well, you know. so it what what was fascinating is that <clears throat> there isn't a price on anything in the Amazon bookstore that I went to on Southport in Chicago. And so you are looking at a book, and the book you're not looking at the spine of the book, you're looking at the cover of the book, which is generally a more inviting image. And so that was kind of pretty basic to have the book face you. Um, so you take the book, and there's scanners all around the store, and you scan it, and it will say the cost of this book is X. But if you're an Amazon Prime member, you will save 35% of the cost of this book. Well, who's not going to sign up for that? Right. Um, And so as a result, you end up taking your stack of books to the cash register. They ask you if you're a Prime member. If you are, they say, do you have the credit card linked to your Prime account? Or do you have the email or cell number linked to it? And so they can source it in a bunch of different ways. And either you give them your credit card or you give them your email or you give them your phone number. Boom, it's done, it's charged. Do you want to charge the card online? Yes, and you're out the door. And, and, and having been told on their big, beautiful screen that you just saved 39% on the cost of your six books. It's such an instant mental gratification. Totally. 
And you don't have to do the work of getting the coupons beforehand. Exactly. Because that's sort of when I was out on Target. I used to love going to Target. Couldn't get out of there for less than $100. But you get everything in one place. You know, you're getting a good price and you collect everything. But about a year or two ago, I went there and they had the Target cartwheel and they had the coupons. There's a different pricing structure. And that was when, you know, because then I feel like I'm not getting a good deal when I don't have the coupons and I haven't put it into the cartwheel. Right. And so I, I like the... Uh, the clarity absolutely of just swiping it and seeing it mm-hmm. uh, do you think that they'll do something similar for Whole Foods absolutely. for grocery shopping I think and I think that whole section of Whole Foods where they kind of sell soap and kind of everything else it's right. kind of the everything right. else department I think is a perfect vehicle for them to sell more sophisticated electronics all of the Alexa and you know all of that stuff that they're really pushing which makes a lot of sense right Right. Yeah, my uh, my two and a half year old son has already figured out how to change the Alexa. He likes to to yell at the Alexa at home. We're like, you know, we so we started having to say please and thank you to right. Alexa because we don't want our two and a half year old to think he can talk right. to someone that way. Well, my nine year old had it doing her math homework until I had to unplug Alexa <laughs> from doing the math homework. <laughs> I love it. Um, so Amazon is, and with Whole Foods is changing the retail experience uh you know what other or on a broader scale with retail i think that some of the retailers that might struggle are the retailers that don't aren't providing any experience for their customer um you work with a lot of retailers uh what are you seeing you know i think that the retailers that are doing it right provide three things to their customers they provide the product that the customer is looking for they provide the service that the customer is looking for, be it an online channel of distribution, be it an in-store channel of distribution, whatever that level of service that customer is looking for, they're providing that. And then they provide the experience. Like, was it a good experience, a bad experience? Did I Was I able to send it back? Was the right thing shipped to me? Whatever that global you know, soup to nuts experience was, was it a good one? Um, you know, but the stores that have the product, I mean, people talk about, oh, you want everything online. The stores that have the product have lines out the door. I mean, you can go into 900 North Michigan on the second floor and they're untucked is packed, right? right. And they're selling $88 shirts. Across the hall, J. Crew is selling the same shirt because their shirts have gotten shorter too. They're kind of on the bandwagon, but their shirts are $32. Right. So you have this big delta, but everyone wants that product. And, and so they're willing to pay for it. It's the experience they want, and it's the level of service that they want. So what's Untucked doing right to attract more of the, the consumers? I think they have found a niche, and they are maximizing their niche. I think that's really—I mean, the other example I can give you, I was in New York earlier this week, is Sweaty Betty. which is a British company, a British athletic wear company, that they have some kind of high-tech fabric that literally dries on your body so it never kind of stays drenched with perspiration. And their leggings are $100. Wow. (laughs) I mean, this is not an inexpensive effort, and yet the line was out the door for two reasons. One is they have a great product. They, were, they only go on sale twice a year because it's a British company, and so they say July and January, those are our sales, so the stuff was on sale. And the 
and then I stood in line and I got in the store and the salesperson who helped me because I was not familiar with the product absolutely upsold me on everything she thought that I needed what kind of exercising do you do how often how long I mean she really wanted to know what did I need and then she was like we have that for you we have this for you oh no this is what you need and you know I left there I thought I was just gonna buy one pair I bought four pairs I bought a shirt I mean you know at a certain point I was like enough but then you're kind of enticed because this is the one-time sale like I would have to wait six more months to get the $100 leggings for $80. Right. So it was it was like this whole thing. And the store was packed. And you walked by Lululemon and Athleta and all of their direct competitors to get to this much smaller, tinier store on Lower Fifth Avenue. Uh, do you think that the, that kind of customer service or they're making you, or they're tailoring the service to you and making you feel... Uh, not special is probably a little strong of a word, but um, making you feel like they're listening to your needs and providing it. You don't get that online. Yeah, you don't. Um, It's hard to upsell online. They try. Polyvore does a really good job because they have stylists who create a whole outfit and a whole series and a whole picnic vignette. And then you, if you like how it looks, that whole lifestyle choice, you flip it up and each item in that whole vignette is for sale and they're telling you where to go and get it. That's kind of as close as you can get to an upsale in my experience online. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really like where you're going with this. And, and that was what I liked about going to ICSC because you see so many magazines where the cover is retail is in trouble and uh, that's an easy thing to say but there's so many things that brick and mortar and in-store shopping can do as an experience that online shopping can't do um, and I think we're going to cease to talk about the differing channels a sale is going to be a sale no matter where it occurs and what's going to happen particularly now with you know, a pure play, what's traditionally been a pure play retailer, Amazon, getting much more heavily into the brick and mortar space and into a very traditional brick and mortar space, the grocery business, that divergence, that convergence of product type and means of distribution is going to start to be too murky for them to distinguish between. Is it an e-commerce sale? Is it a brick and mortar sale online? Is it a in-store experience because it's going to start to become irrelevant. Right. Uh, there's a, a retailer that I use, Charles Turwitt, that sells mm-hmm. shirts, but they don't stock their stores with very much clothing. So you go there, it's basically a dressing room, and then they uh, you know, help you purchase it online. They ship right. it straight from England. And um, and it's also, you see it a lot, a lot of ads on Facebook too. But um, I guess that transitions well into something that you advocated a lot for at ICSC, which is uh, sales fairness. Yeah. And uh, could you tell everyone a little bit about what sales fairness uh, uh, legislation you, is? So the name of the legislation is really Main Street Fairness. Um, and it was a bill that was passed in the Senate in the last Congress. It has never really gone anywhere in the House, but it... It pretty much is legislation that would overrule the 1992 Quill decision in the Supreme Court, which said that if you are a remote seller, meaning you don't have a physical presence in the state where the item is being shipped, that shipper cannot be charged sales tax. And so it was a little nutty, but 
it was a different time. And, you know, Justice Kennedy has said it was a different time. Now Justice Neil Gorsuch has written opinions Mm -hmm. and has said it needs to be reviewed. We are in a different time. And so the... We've got nowhere in the Congress, mostly because they would be imposing a tax or the permission to remit the tax, because you owe the tax. Right. But if you don't pay it at the point of purchase, you owe it on your state income tax form at the end of the year, because it's a sales and use tax. But so few people track it accurately and then remit it honorably, um, that really you need to pay it at the point of purchase. And so it's created this disparity where the government, the federal government, by failing to act and overrule Quill is really picking winners and losers. And I've been lobbying it for 20 years for ICSC. Initially, the pushback was, oh, you know, this is technology and we really need to incubate these businesses and it would be really, really hard to calculate this tax. Well, fast forward 20 years, a single computer program can calculate all 11,000 sales tax juris- taxing jurisdictions and all the different add-ons and deductions that sure. you have. Um, so that's not a problem anymore. And the fact that we are now in a much different world where people can buy virtually from any place, any time, that it's not really a mail order mindset, which is what existed in 1992. And so... Um, it's interesting that it's called the Main Street when actually uh, ICSC, I saw, released something that a week or two ago that uh, the state of Maine, uh, different version, right, right. Uh, had passed a Sales Fairness Act legislation. Apparently they have a very strong shopping center culture because they have a lot of uh, tourist activity in the right. summertime. Um, and so they that was the first state that passed. So. Have you been lobbying at the federal level or so the state's been, level? So we've been lobbying at the federal level. We've also been working with the NCSL, which the, is the National Conference of State Legislatures, um, to work at the state level. Uh, many, many states have passed e-fairness legislation, which only means that they now have the means with which to remit. The litigation that's the furthest along is the state of South Dakota, and the state of South Dakota literally crafted a bill that directly confronted Quill on all four corners. And the hope was they would they filed it in uh, Pierre, so it was in the state capitol. It would go directly to the state Supreme Court because there's no intermediate level of review okay. in South Dakota. It's now pending before the S- South Dakota Supreme Court. So they lost, the whole goal was to lose, lose, win, right? So you lose at the trial level, you lose at the state Supreme Court level because they all say quill, quill, and then you take it to the Supreme Court, hopefully cert gets granted, and then you get it reviewed at the Supreme Court level. So hopefully, in theory, the earliest you could get a decision out of South Dakota would be in September, so you'd file a cert petition in the late fall, and it would be granted or not granted at the beginning of the year and so hopefully by either late next spring or, or you know the fall of 2018 it would be heard by the supreme court well that's extremely interesting i like how you say that like the quill you know was helping pick winners and losers because it really does give a really unfair advantage to the online retailers if you Why live in the city of chicago it's over 10 percent advantage <clears throat> right right and so us consumers are paying that when we go to the grocery store uh but yeah other people aren't when they're ordering online it just while we're here on icsc um 
we have a lot of real estate professionals that listen to this podcast, and I'm sure they go to ICSC in uh, the major convention in May. But if ICSC does a lot of lobbying and legislative efforts, how can someone who's uh, a member and just goes to the convention each year get involved? So um, there are lots of ways to get involved. Because I worked at the federal government before I came to this industry, the lobbying, the government relations side of ICSC was my natural access point into kind of the shopping center industry and the trade association generally. You, there is, doesn't matter what state you live in, there is an ICSC state government relations committee in every state. Um, so you would could get involved at the state level. That state committee would hopefully send representatives to something called the Strategic Leadership Summit, which is a meeting in June where everybody meets in Washington. And you as a team from your state would have appointments set up for you with the members of Congress from your state, either if not the actual congressional member, then their staff. And my experience, 20 years later, it's more productive to meet with the staff. It's not as sure. glamorous as meeting with the congressperson, but the meeting is always more substantive. You always get a straight answer, and they really can't dance around as well as their bosses can. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's much actually more productive to meet with the staff. And as we all know, those are the folks actually doing the work. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I find it fascinating. So... It's a great meeting to go to. ICSE has made it very easy. They'll pay, I think, one night of your hotel. And um, it's just a great meeting. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I would encourage those out there to uh, get involved with ICSE yeah. and, and their efforts. So anybody who just listened to you talk for the past 10 minutes, it's apparent with the ease in which you discuss the uh, the process by which to appeal <laughs> things to the Supreme Court that you are a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. And I'm not going to say former lawyer because you're always no, stuck you're being never one. Not a lawyer. You can't shake it's, it. It's easier to take the girl out of scad than it is to take the scad out of the girl. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, you started at Scad and Arps. And for those who don't know, that is, in my mind at least, the quintessential New York law firm. Yes. Um, they have offices all over the country yes. and the world, I but, in New York. Yes. but I think of it as like yes. New York, yes. Skadden. A hundred percent. So, you know, tell us about your experience there and how you transitioned to find your way to being a real so, estate So, you know, I mean, for everybody out there, if you're driving, you may want to pull over before you hear me say this. I loved working at Skadden in New York. If I could pick my Groundhog Day, it would be doing exactly what I was doing as a junior associate working at Skadden because the mid-level associate that I worked for is still my closest friend on the planet. Her boss and my boss, the partner that we worked for, is still a very close friend of both of ours. It's all about who you work with when all you do is work. And yeah. so it was the best experience of my life, and I miss it every day. Oh, that's really surprisingly <laughs> nice to hear. Yeah, um, yeah because I'm sure you spent a lot of time with them. Yes. Um, so you were in the bankruptcy uh, section, you know, yeah. and um, I get experience with some bankruptcy from the creditor's perspective, represent landlords, sure. so the retailers file for bankruptcy. But the, the big firms that do the debtor side, I think a lot of consumers think of bankruptcy lawyers as they're just uh, helping indigent clients filter the way through the process. But bankruptcy at the big firms that work in New York and Delaware and around the country, they do really cool restructuring where they're taking massive businesses that have massive locations. They're trying mm -hmm. to sell assets, they're trying yep. to restructure debt. It's a uh, very technical, and it's got it intermixes a lot with business mm -hmm. aspects. Um, 
So why'd you leave if you loved it? Well, so I didn't leave. I um, I was working at SCAD and I loved it. And I had a very unique opportunity in May of 1996 to go to work for the National Bankruptcy Review Commission, which was a congressional commission created by an act of Congress that created a commission with nine commissioners um, and nine commissioners, including a chairman, to spend two years reviewing the bankruptcy code and writing a report to Congress, the Supreme Court, and then the, you know, the administration um, recommending changes to the bankruptcy code. This had been done in 1972 that resulted in the 1978 Bankruptcy Reform Act, which changed the Bankruptcy Act of 1898 as amended over the years. So, I mean, it was a, it's a big deal. It doesn't happen very often. So I thought, wow, like I can go from being a third year associate to working for the National Bankruptcy Review Commission in Washington. And then I come back to New York and I get all kinds of accelerated partnership track and all kinds of bells and whistles because you take about a 75% pay cut to leave those big firm jobs to go to work for the government. But, you know, I wasn't married. I had no children. I was a free agent, as they say in baseball. And so I was very excited to do that. And it was an amazing experience. And then how long were you there? Uh, I was there from May of 96 until we filed a report in October of 1997, October 19th. Well, it, it doesn't. So you develop some analytical skills. You don't get, <laughs> well, you know, and, aside and, from reviewing the tax code, I, there, that is a, a very complex, very detailed, precise code. Um, and you get to think about things that you don't otherwise get to do as a lawyer. Like you get to decide what would the best appellate process mm -hmm. be in bankruptcy? What would, should bankruptcy judges be Article Three judges? I mean, I worked on all kinds of fascinating issues that as an attorney, you can write articles on if you have free time, but you don't ever really have to work with a client on that issue. And so that was amazing. And I worked for amazing people. I worked for now Senator Elizabeth Warren. I worked for Lawrence King, who was then the dean of the bankruptcy bar at NYU, and with amazing, amazing experts all around the country. Well, that, that does sound extremely interesting. So then how did you transition to... <laughs> Uh, your current position. Well, so I was um, I was vigorously negotiating, as you might imagine, in September of 1997 to go back to New York and capitalize on the value of my experience in the government. And uh, my grandfather called me up, and he said, "I'm 87, and I'm ready to only come into work three days a week, and so you need to move back to Chicago and take over my business." And so there was a draft, and my number was one, and they only needed one person. And so that's what I did. And so that was, uh, you've been doing it for 30 years. 20 years. 20 that years. was yeah. 1997. 97, the end of 97, yeah. Um, so tell us a little, about, a little bit about Abel and Associates and what kind of projects you're working on now. So, you know, when I came back, uh, the portfolio was about a little over, it was about two and a half million square feet. <clears throat> um, it was in dire need of redevelopment and repositioning and re-merchandising and all of the re's you can add. Um, so, you know, for from 97 to 2000 and really nine, I was kind of doing it on my own. I tore down one project, remediated the brownfield and rebuilt it. I massively redeveloped another project and relocated mall anchors and tore some down and built Target and did all kinds of interesting things. Um, and then really in 2009, started assembling the team that now I work with today, which is a great group of people. And we've expanded the business. We've started doing projects with institutional partners, 
and real estate fund investors. And so we've kind of expanded the business that way. And that's been very fruitful. And so what kind of uh, projects are you targeting right now? You know, the projects, the business that we're trying to get back into is really the business, which was the roots of the company in 1941, which is, you know, the vintage office space in the loop. We see a lot of opportunity in that kind of taking a C building and making it a B building. Right. And so we've been actively pursuing those kinds of assets. Yeah. I mean, in the past five years or so, you're see, really seeing a lot of businesses flocking to downtown, a lot of office space going up and being built, which probably leaves a lot of opportunity in the buildings that have better locations, frankly, because they're right next, there's a lot of right in the center loop. Those buildings have better locations than that west loop that don't have the subway access. Right. And a lot of those buildings, if you think <clears throat> about it, Philip, have been converted over the past, call it 12 years, to residential and to hospitality. And so that kind of that strata of office space, there are beautiful office towers, A level space all around the city, but we're really looking at who are the B office users? Who are the people who wanna spend $35 a square foot for their space, not $75 a square foot for their space? Right. Um, I wanna transition to talking to uh, a different, about a different topic, which is, and I wanna just make sure that we leave enough room for it. And so when I saw you speak at ICSC, you were giving the speech as the outgoing chairwoman of, uh, the, of ICSC, and it was about you to, uh, well, I, I don't wanna step on the conclusion, so it was about a period of low economic growth. Can you tell us? About, sure. about your speech there? Um, so, you know, I just want to say that, you know, I had a great year as the chairman of ICSC and everybody was very patient with me because I didn't give the classic state of the industry speech for a year. All I talked about was kind of disseminating the census data on what did and did not constitute an e-commerce sale. So when I thought about giving my final speech, which, you know, it was such an honor to serve, so this is really the swan song. Um, I wanted people to think about something. I didn't just want to talk about the cities I had traveled to and the amazing experiences that I had, which I did. I had all of that. But I wanted people to think about something. And it seemed like, you know, our industry is in such a state of flux. And I think sometimes the narrative is almost more in flux than the actual business, but it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree. And I wanted everyone with me to step back and think about we're in a period of very low economic growth and why that doesn't work for anybody, no matter what business you're in, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I had been thinking about it and there had been a McKinsey study and then two weeks before ICSC, Janet Yellen gave a speech at Brown, which is her alma mater, where she said that if the government and big business implemented policies that would not only encourage women to enter the workforce, but to stay as active members of the workforce through their childbearing years, we would increase GDP in the U.S. by 5% per year. Wow. And where are we right now? And I, Well, we're at 2%. We're not even yeah. at 2%, barely at 2%. We're hoping for 2%. So the idea yeah. that we would go from two, I mean, obviously women are part of that too, to maybe six, I mean, that's incredible. And so I thought, I gotta talk about this. I have to talk about this. This makes so much sense. And McKinsey had done an amazing study that came out in September of 2015 where they looked at this globally. And they looked at gender parity 
as an issue of how do we raise enough economic actors so that women are the same level of economic actor as men. And they concluded that if we did that globally by 2025, not 2095, 2025, we would add $28 trillion, trillion with a T, to global GDP. That's more than the US economy, the number one economy in the world, and the Chinese economy, the number two economy in the world combined. Just, and just with gender parity. Just with yeah. gender parity. And you know, it didn't talk about, is it fair? Because I can tell you, I grew up with a dad who would look at me in the eye and say, Elizabeth, life isn't fair. Who told you life had to be fair? So it's not, we're not doing it because it's fair. We're not doing it because it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because it's in everybody's economic interest to do it. And I thought that was an argument that had yet to be made. It was, it was a powerful argument. It resonated with me. Um, that's why I reached out to you. Um, and I think I, I had heard this. Uh, I have a friend that is a preacher in uh, West Chicago, and he always talks about the, the power dynamic between the powerful and the powerless and how that structure never changes unless there's a revolution or whether it's in um, – the better interests of the the party in power and then i had not heard that until you gave your speech and your and your argument is rather than revolution now we're at a period where it is in the power structure's best interest to properly utilize their female workforce to bring more people into the economic universe absolutely so what sort of policies do you think uh, need to be put in place you know unfortunately it starts at a very early point, right? Because a lot of these issues are cultural. Some of them are religious. Some of them aren't just longer maternity leaves and better no child left behind education policies and better STEM education for girls and young women. I mean, so it, it starts so early and in some respects, for our generation, it starts with people's grandparents. I mean, you can't really start with them because some of their cultural norms are so ingrained. Um, so, you know, I think that it needs to start with the government and big business because that's usually where the economic opportunities are to change kind of social engineering through the tax code, right? Make it more incentivize people by literally incentivizing them to do the right thing by providing, you know, tax benefits, tax relief, tax credits, whatever the issue is, um, whatever the big business policy is about keeping people in the workforce and making it easier to stay in the workforce, I think, and providing the right at levels of education so that they can get into the workforce in the first place, um, you know, would be powerful ways to start to change the structure. Yeah, I think those are all excellent ideas. Um, one thing that I've been noticing recently and is that I'm seeing companies, rather, so you know, sometimes I, I lose a little faith in some of our current legislators, um, being able to get some of those policies put into place in them. Whether, I question whether they care about putting those policies in place right now. And uh, which goes to your point about they should care because it'd be better for everyone's business if if they did care. Um, but I'm seeing companies like uh, Google and the Hilton and our friend at AbbVie recently had, they have enacted uh, stronger leave policies, both 
for the men and the women um, in order to support family-friendly workplaces. And I think that they're doing it uh, from a competitive standpoint because they want to retain and attract top talent. And so I just received this article that was sent to me by my wife a few days ago who I should uh, give a shout out to right now because she had done uh, a TED talk two years ago. You can look it up. It's under Renee Coover at TEDx Oak Park Women. And her, her TED talk was centered around the uh, women's rights in the workplace. And it started by addressing the problem of having insufficient leave uh, and then went on, and it was two years ago, and it was, she was starting to note that some of the companies like Google were enacting these longer policies uh, in order to retain talent because it costs them more to hire new workers and retrain new workers, so it just made business sense to put this in place. And now I'm actually seeing it come more to fruition, and um, it's also similar to a TEDx talk that you've given <laughs> on the North Shore about how uh, you called it the problem that solves itself, but right. about how how we can get more women executives in the workforce and so I'd encourage listeners to to watch that TED talk as well. Um, well is there anything more you want to say on on that topic? Well you know you made the point to me on the phone Philip when we spoke about you know that the United States and Papua New Guinea are the only two kind of arguably first world countries that don't have government mandated leave policies right um and so that's you know yeah every other developed country in the world besides the united states and papua new guinea have uh state-sponsored leave policies and uh one thing i was thinking about recently was also because our friend at uh abvi pharmaceutical company they had increased their the male's parental leave policy as well and I thought that that was also helpful to the fi family dynamic because what some people do is they only take a little bit of time right when the baby is born but then they save some of that parental leave policy so when the mother returns to the workforce they can then use that parental leave for the sick days because kids in their first year get sick right. um, and so they could they could use that parental leave policy to help support both partners working right no absolutely and I think, you know, and it benefits the children, too. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to transition just uh, to talk about, we've already talked a little bit about retail trends, but let's close it out with, uh, do you see anything in the future as a, as a trend that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, you know, so I've spent the past year writing these trend reports. And I would say that the most recent trend report is really the biggest trend I see, and that's the idea of membership nation. And a little bit about what we talked about, where you want to be a prime member, you want to be a Costco member, you want to be a member of something, and that brings your cost of those goods down because you have signed up to be the member. And I think when we think about why inflation has been kept so low, so much of it has been driven by technology and the fact that every consumer holding a smartphone has perfect pricing information at all times. And so stores are really, you know, retailers, any kind of consumer facing business is prevented from raising prices if they want to continue their level of sales growth. And so how are they going to become profitable businesses? Well, the best way to incent customers to achieve those low prices is to require them to have some kind of subscription membership and so I think that's really where we're going 
Right, and then also uh, I had seen on one of your ICSC talks, uh, you talk about how brands, about how the millennial generation is affiliating uh, their personality sort of with the brands yes, yes. And, and they use the Patagonia example. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating, if you don't mind sharing sure. that. No, I, you know, it, it's interesting when you read some of the social scientists about what the millennial cohort is looking for. You know, that's the next bubble of consumers and they now outnumber the baby boomers. And they've decided that the rise of social media has engendered an idea that you are your personal brand. And so when you go out to your audience on whatever social media platform you've chosen, that everything you do has to reinforce that brand. And so what Patagonia discovered last Black Friday was, you know, after the results of the election, historically from its founding by Yvonne Chouinard, it's been very focused on the environment, preserving the environment, making sure that our natural resources aren't depleted or ruined by, you know, industry or other things. Certainly climate change would be one of the things that's changing the face of the environment. They decided that on Black Friday, they were going to donate not 100% of their profits, but 100% of their revenue. 100% of their sales was going to go towards That's groups that provide climate science and climate change arguments and really are out to preserve the environment. And I think they estimated that they would do $2 million worth of sales on Black Friday when they looked historically at what their company sales were on Black Friday, and they did $10 million, so five times their estimate. And I think what it reinforces is that when they came out with such a strong statement of saying, this is who we are, this is what we stand for, if you stand with us, then you want to wear a jacket, a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, whatever it is, with our Patagonia logo on it, everybody responded. And everybody who said, that's who I am too, I mean, when you think about the boomers, boomers had a lot of cognitive dissonance. We could complain about the death of Main Street and drive to the interstate to shop at Walmart and never connect those two events, right? The Walmart at the interstate was killing the downtown Main Street businesses. The millennial generation has none of that. They see every dollar that they spend needs to be representative of who they are. And it needs to be an authentic thing and it needs to be part of a bigger bigger cause yeah you know i just made a connection that's fascinating because i first started noticing five eight years ago that athletes were really considering more their personal brand and everything they do is about their personal brand lebron is probably the best at it at building out his personal brand and uh, i didn't ever connected the two that is generational i was just thinking about it's the agents talking about marketing themselves and that's probably part of it and trying to get endorsements and that being a marketing to develop their personal brand but it's kind of everybody of that generation is thinking about their personal brand they're just not thinking about it like translating it into dollars as much but they're thinking about who they are and, and what they I, want to and i, I agree with you themselves. it's not being just driven by the athletes who are now a different generation who are who they who the sticker they have on their shirt isn't just the person who wrote the biggest check it needs to be who they are the brands themselves are starting to pick and choose athletes that they want to be associated with so because they now take their brands more seriously i heard this amazing presentation from the guys at red bull that said when they pick a snowboarder 
they understand that that snowboarder wants to do tricks and all kinds of things at the Olympics that may not ever have been seen. And they will build an entire facility for their snowboarder Red Bull representatives so that they can practice these tricks and all of their routines in a place that nobody can see it so that the first time those tricks are seen is at the competition. Yeah. You know, they're not practicing with everybody standing on the sidelines watching their tricks. And it was fascinating to me because it made me realize that that's not just the brand picking the person that they thought did a great job at that news conference after the snowboard competition and saying that's who we want to have our brand associated with. But they were actually saying it has to be an athlete that actually drinks Red Bull, so actually uses our product. And we are going to make huge investments in the performance of that athlete so that not only are they wearing the Red Bull logo, but that we've helped them achieve the top performance that they can. And I thought that was pretty cool. That is really cool. Becoming partners uh, more ways than one. Right. Um, The only company that I've seen go a different direction, which is kind of not paid attention to their brand, which might hurt their sales, is Bonobos. I literally saw people on Facebook saying, Walmart bought bonobos. I'm not going to buy bonobos pants anymore. Um, I know. Because of what the, how they associate Walmart. It's the only company I've seen that's uh, no, gone a different direction. Well, and I think that'll be the challenge because part of the authenticity of bonobos and part of their resonance with their customer was that they were different. Right. And once they become the same or more institutional more part of the consumer industrial complex, we can call it, right? I think it loses that cachet. Right. They would have been better off buying it and not telling anybody. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, if you want the brand just for, because it's good business, just, right. just buy You know, they it. left the jet.com guys in Hoboken, so at least they, they knew not to bring them to Bentonville, Arkansas. But I read that they did take away the beer on Friday or the keg that showed up in the lounge Friday at lunch. And the guys put up with it for like three weeks and then said, we're going to lose all of our employees. We need the keg back. And so they brought the keg back. <laughs> good. <laughs> good. Someone out there is exactly. advocating Standing for the keg. up for a good time on a Friday afternoon. Um, you know, there's some things in life worth fighting for. <laughs> um, all right. Last question before I, I get you out of here. Uh, what's your favorite building in Chicago? Wow, that's such a good question. You get a lot of different answers yeah, from people. You know, I would have to say it's the Board of Trade building. It is beautiful. I think that's the most iconic building in the city. And when you think about all the movies that have been filmed in Chicago, it's that view down LaSalle Street that is just so recognizable. And you can't be anywhere place else on the planet. And that's pretty cool. It's such a coincidence. I was literally walking by a tourist today from a foreign tourist two hours ago, and he was standing in the middle of the street taking the picture, and cars were honking at him. But he didn't care. He wanted that picture. <laughs> the Board of Trade, just, right just on like, the right, Street. Right, right. Just like Shia LaBeouf. Wasn't that the scene? Didn't he have like a yeah. mad car chase scene yeah. through the loop in the, in the middle of the night? I actually came to work that day. I had to walk around that scene when they were filming it. Right, right. And I, I, my wife and I had pictures on our, our wedding day. Uh, right. Right oh, that's there. cool. So, Very cool. So I obviously agree. Right, right. Well, Liz, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoy having you on the program. Uh, maybe you come back later, you know, six months, a year from now, tell us what the next trends Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Be happy to, Philip. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Uh-huh.
nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guest's individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding. 